My guest today is Professor Matthias Kling, who is Professor of Photon Science and Applied Physics at Stanford University and the Director of the Science, Research and Development Division at the Linux Coherent Light Source, LCLS, at the SLAG National Accelerator Laboratory. Welcome, Matthias. Thank you, Gil. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, so thanks for doing this. So uh, you guys had some great news uh, last week or, or a couple of weeks ago. And um, I want to get a little bit of a historical perspective here. So SLAC stands for Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And it's uh, um, actually started out in the 60s uh, with uh, an accelerator laboratory that uh, at the time collided uh, particles. So it was a particle physics laboratory. Um, and for this, they had built a very long accelerator that then sort of uh, um, at the end featured a couple of experiments where these collisions were studied. And uh, uh, sort of a version of uh, um, uh, what now is known to many people as uh, LHC and CERN, what CERN is doing. SLAC actually stopped doing this kind of research um, uh, experimentally. Uh, a while ago, uh, and that long tunnel um, that has been used for the original accelerator has been repurposed. So, so this is uh, essentially what uh, made room and uh, enables the installation of um, LCLS. In fact, it's all based on an accelerator that uh, brings electrons to nearly the speed of light and uh, then makes them wiggle uh, through and what's called undulators, essentially you have uh, magnets that are alternatingly poled uh, and the electrons go through this uh, alternating uh, magnetic structure and it makes the electrons wiggle, so they start to oscillate. And as they start to oscillate, they emit radiation and that's, that's the process uh, that leads to the free electron laser radiation. Uh, the X-ray pulses that in the end we use at LCLS and uh, now with LCLS 2. And since you talked about this big announcement, let me maybe start there. Uh, so this is a um, once in a generation type of uh, event that happened just last week where essentially we um, inaugurated a facility that now has uh, many orders of magnitude higher uh, brilliance and uh, uh, in, in X-ray lights than before. Um, and typically in physics, you can hope to achieve maybe a factor of two or, or, or four, or if you're very lucky, uh, an order of magnitude uh, improvement over some parameters that have uh, existed before. Think about Moore's law, for instance, where the, the speed of processors is uh, uh, every uh, two years or so doubles. Uh, here, we're talking about a very different uh, type of achievement. So in 2009, the first uh, free electron laser in the hard X-ray regime with LCLS-1 was inaugurated, which actually went uh, billions of times over the brilliance of previous light sources, the synchrotrons at the time. Uh, and then with LCLS-2, we again uh, have a factor of uh, 10 to the 4, uh, that we are uh, above essentially the, the limit that we had with LCLS-1. And why is that important? Well, uh, in, in the simplest explanation, if before we... Uh, sorry, Matthias, sorry yeah. to interrupt. So before we get the details of it, you know, I, I just want to get a sort of a general context. So um, so we have, so accelerators, maybe general public uh, knows, you know, the Fermi in Illinois and LHC in Geneva, and there was a failed attempt <laughs> underneath the Dallas Fort Worth. 
Um, they all appear to be sort of circular in their mm -hmm. construction, right? So, but but a slack is a linear accelerator. So, um, was there any advantage in the initial going? Was it just simplicity of construction that um, that uh, in 1960s that um, slack was actually a linear one? Uh, it's it's well uh, uh, so to some extent I think the uh, the point of having a synchrotron being circular is that uh, as as you uh, force the electrons in in these circles they emit radiation because you're essentially bending their trajectory uh, and and that leads to uh, them emitting uh, radiation so they lose a little bit of energy which means that you need to post accelerate them again and you can do that in a circular sort of uh, structure the best way and uh, essentially keep keep the electron sort of bunches that run around the, the circular structure uh, intact and, and always bring them up to a similar speed and refill uh, them as you have losses. So in a linear structure that is uh, not possible, uh, but it is possible essentially without losses to just keep accelerating these electrons to their highest possible energies and essentially that is where Linear accelerators uh, have an advantage, so you can uh, you can just speed up these electrons within a very sort of uh, limited uh, space in some sense to to very high energies, and that um, uh, is in the uh, giga electron volt range. Uh, if you compare, for instance, what uh, thermal energy is, so the room temperature that we're used to, that is about uh, 300 milli electron volts. So it's uh, much much less than giga electron volts which is 10 to the 9 electron volts so it's 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 many many orders of magnitude above that so these are very very fast uh, uh, particles um, and uh, yeah linear accelerators enable us to uh, uh, to get them to, to that speed and i have to say uh, one of the uh, key aspects i think in um, that that uh, is important to us is how um, uh, how sort of uh, how well defined that electron beam is. Uh, so it has a certain velocity in one direction, but we want it to be um, very confined and have, have as, as little sort of velocities into other dimensions. And that is still an area of research, but uh, uh, tremendous progress has been made on the accelerator technology side. And I'm not an expert on that, but I have to say, but uh, that has enabled now with the superconducting accelerators that we also use for LCLS2 to essentially um, achieve um, achieve a very high, we call that quasi-CW, so it's, it's, it's essentially, it's a light source that emits flashes of light, but at very high uh, um, repetition rate, so it's, it's uh, this, this light source that we had before, LCLS1, was 100 hertz, so 100 pulses, actually 120 to be exact, pulses per second, and we could irradiate molecules and, and look at uh, their sort of uh, as they did their business, so we, we could look at their motions and study things in time and assemble movies of, of what was going on. Now we'll talk about that a bit more. Uh, now with uh, LCLS2, we have essentially one megahertz, so it's uh, it's it's a 10 to the six uh, um, um, photons per uh, sorry uh, light flashes per second, and that's that's so much uh, brighter and so so many more opportunities to essentially collect these molecules as they undergo motion, as dynamics is happening in these in these systems, and I'm just talking about molecules as an example here, uh, that we get uh, much better movies, essentially, of, um, of, of the dynamics. 
So the so the accelerator, if I understand this correctly, Matthias, is in the business of smashing particles together and and looking for something that comes out of it. Uh, and, and Slack, as you say, is sort of repurposed for something a little different, right? So so the, the news um, piece that you had sent me, you know, it says here, Slack fires up the world's most powerful X-ray laser, LCLS2, ushers in a new era of science. And as you say here, with up to a million X-ray flashes per second, 8,000 times more than its predecessor, it transforms the ability of scientists to explore atomic scale ultrafast phenomena that are key to broad range of applications from quantum materials to clean energy technologies and medicine. And so, so essentially now you have LCLS-1 and LCLS-2, two instruments to look into, um, if I understand this correctly, to look into things that are really, really small <laughs> uh, and to understand their dynamic. So even things like uh, chemical uh, reactions and things like that. So, um, so I don't know how how you do that. So, so <laughs> before we get there, so the X-ray flashes. Um, so you know, a very large number of flashes, a million X-ray flashes per second. Um, so how do you create these X-ray flashes? Number one and number two. Uh, just because the frequency is very high, what's the advantage of that? Right, right. So, yeah, let me let me first get into why flashes are interesting. First of all, if you have a flash of light, you can, of course, pack more sort of uh, light into that, that one flash. Um, and then uh, sort of taking a bird's eye view on this, if you imagine yourself uh, in a dark room, sort of a, you know, uh, sort of, let's say, a disco or so where it's dark, but then you have this uh, disco light flashing at, at people, right? You can see them sort of frozen in their dance moves. Yeah. Um, and essentially, the more light flashes you have, the sort of smoother becomes that motion that you're observing. And essentially, that is something that we're doing with the X-ray flashes of light as well. So we're illuminating uh, molecules or quantum materials or... Uh, biological specimen, and, and there uh, we, we, we set something in motion in these systems um, by, for instance, uh, exciting them into a, let's say, in a quantum material, if we can excite a, um, an exotic state in there that we want to use for modern electronics, uh, then we can study, okay, how does that state behave? Uh, what, what happens after that excitation? How is, for instance, in biological specimen, how is sunlight converted into energy? Uh, and uh, how, for instance, uh, does the uh, uh, protection of the, the UV protection of the skin work, right? So we have, uh, um, um, there's molecules that essentially convert that UV light into very fast uh, motion of molecules without breaking the molecule. And that's a very important photoprotection mechanism uh, in biology. And we want to understand how that exactly works. And so uh, what we can do is, is we can use these light flashes to essentially uh, take snapshots of that motion. Uh, and we do that, we repeat that, we do that many times and, uh, and actually change the time at which we irradiate the system with this light flash. Uh, and then if you put all of that together, you can create the movie of what goes on. So essentially we have a starting point where that motion uh, kicks in and then we, we, uh, we can put all these X-ray images together into a movie. And, and the fine detail at which we can look at with that movie depends very much on 
essentially the the brightness of the light source, its uh, its repetition rate, in fact, uh, is is an important parameter um, because it allows us to just get enough statistics and get enough data to look at fine details and not just very large effects. Uh, and another important point is these light flashes are very very brief in time. So again, uh, drawing the analogy to um, uh, to dance moves, yeah, uh, that you uh, where you use that sort of stroposcopic light to irradiate. Um, here, uh, so if in that scenario you make the, the light flash longer, then you start seeing a smearing out of motion. So it's not really a frozen uh, motions that you can put together, but you, you see some smearing. And essentially we need that light flash to be shorter than the dynamics that's going on. Uh, or drawing the analogy to photography, if you want to photograph, let's say, a runner as uh, the runner is running around the track, and you want to keep sort of make a still frame picture of that runner, you have to use uh, an exposure time that is short enough. Yeah. Because if you don't, then that gets blurred out, right? Uh, um, there's a picture that I like to show in talks of uh, a tennis player, uh, and, uh, and, and, and what you can see is, is that the, the person is actually frozen in that picture, but the tennis ball that is very fast uh, is blurred out. So that's just a, a, essentially an exposure time where um, the slow motion was captured, but the fast motion not yet. And we see that in, in the dynamics of these really, really small systems in the microcosm as well, there are things that are moving a little bit slower, uh, and that's typically um, all the heavy things <laughs> in nature, such as the, the nuclei in molecules or, or the lattice in, in, in crystals. Um, and, uh, and there's things that move really, really fast, and that's the tiny electrons that uh, make up for the bonding in molecules, and they, they move on a timescale that's unimaginably short, uh, namely it is on an attosecond timescale. An attosecond is 10 to the minus 18 seconds. It's a billionth of a billionth of a second, and it's it, the best way to explain it, I think, is uh, an attosecond compares to a second, as a second to the age of the universe. So <laughs> right. incredibly short timescale, but that is the natural timescale on which electrons move. And we're now able with LCLS, uh, thanks to a very strong uh, team here that has developed these capabilities, we're able to produce these attosecond light flashes uh, with a free electron laser. And actually at the moment, it's the, it's the only one in the world that uh, can do this. And that enables us to look not just at, um, and I will come to the resolution as well, but it enables us to sort of capture motion all the way from that very, very fast motion to motion that, of course, extends into longer timescales. So if you can capture the fastest motion, there's no problem in capturing also slower motion. Right. Yeah, so so I get the intuition of this. So the dance floor is actually a, a good, good analog to it. So yeah, so when you have a lot more light flashes, you get better and better resolution or better and better picture of what's going right. on the dance floor. Right. Imagine and, you have you have yeah. two situations, two moves, right? And you see the person doing this, and then in the next moment doing that. Right. Uh, in order to understand how you move from this situation to that situation, you would need all the pictures in between, right? Yeah. Uh, because you can't tell if I move my hands sort of left or right. Uh, just from looking at these two, and that's essentially what we see uh, in the microscopic world as, uh, as well. If we take enough time steps, we can see um, what we call intermediate states, so we can see how the system evolved from A to B to C to D, 
And that is very important because we, well, for two reasons. One is because we want to understand these systems on a very fundamental level, being able to also tweak essentially theoretical models to, uh, to, to predict this behavior. And that will help us to use the theoretical models for uh, predicting new systems that we haven't done experiments on. Uh, and the other is that there is new functionality that comes from the time axis. So if you imagine you have, uh, for instance, say, uh, um, uh, talking about medical applications, if you have a new uh, a drug that uh, has certain, it's essentially a large molecule that enables you to um, uh, fulfill certain medical functionality, if that um, changes its configuration to fulfill that uh, sort of uh, function, then um, it, you can think of it as, okay, it's, it's initially in one configuration and finally in another, but there are many sort of intermediate steps in between. And these intermediate steps, understanding them will enable us to, to potentially use one of those intermediate steps for additional functionality that hasn't been exploited at all so far. So we might be able to optimize uh, the use of uh, chemicals, of, uh, of drugs uh, for other purposes, looking at essentially the sort of intermediate steps. Uh, I can so, give you one more example, maybe that I'm very excited about, if I may. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to ask you a clarification question. So on the dance floor, you are still limited by the eye's ability, the eye's shutter speed. So you, you have to really sort of increase the frequency to some level that it is going to look continuous. Uh, to the eye. Here, you don't have any such issue. Um, so you're going to you're going to take a million pictures a second on a chemical reaction, and then you can you can put that all together, <laughs> exposed into a movie, right? It, it's slightly different. So uh, yeah. you, you're right about that analogy. So there, that's the way it would work. But um, here, we essentially what we do is is we can um, uh, use an arbitrary. Uh, time step, let's say, from the initiation of an event, so that's the person that starts dancing, right? Uh, and 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 where you take that picture, and let's say that dance is always exactly the same, yeah. yeah. So no no change, always exactly the same. So you can reproduce this uh, um, a trillion times. Then in principle, we're not limited, of course, to taking data for one second. We can take mm. data for many hours, right? And that's then it's not it's not a million images, but it's 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 much more than that, um, and we can choose the time step. So we're not limited to taking essentially just one million images a second, but we can uh, step very much in between uh, in intervals that we define. So and that's possible optically. We can define, uh, as I said, attosecond intervals, which is many orders of magnitude below that, um, and then. However, let's say if you want to step through your process that is on a scale of, I'm just giving an example, 100 attoseconds, really short time. So you need 10 steps to reach uh, a femtosecond, and then you need to reach another. You need another, uh, uh, you know, uh, so many steps to reach um, with the same precision uh, the next level, which which is a picosecond. Um, you, you will have to record a lot of images, and and essentially. Uh, at some point, one second of data acquisition is not enough, even at a million uh, shots per second. You will need to record for hours. But now imagine if you have a light source that has much, much lower sort of rate at which the light is flashing. You can still record the very same movie in principle, but you would need weeks, maybe months to take the same type of data. And then it becomes impossible. So that's the main difference between having many pulses and few pulses. 
it enables us to all of a sudden record things that were impossible before because we just couldn't. I think that typically an experiment that gives you reliable and good data that lasts for somewhere between hours and days. But that's about it because uh, also these light sources, we can use them um, in a sort of shift type fashion for typically um, something like uh, 60 hours or so. And that's that's one experiment. And then within these 60 hours, we have to record all of the data that we're interested in. And of course, that you know invo involves also setting up for these experiments and making sure the parameters are right. Uh, so typically, um, the experimental data that is published uh, uh, includes a couple of hours of data collection. So, uh, and that means if you have a very high repetition rate light source, you can take so much better quality data and so much, many more sort of steps, time steps in between that you haven't seen before within these few hours that otherwise would have been impossible. So it's really, it's, it's, it's a game changer in how we can, how we can look at uh, the micro world. It's mind boggling. So, so we are up to a point that we can actually take pictures of chemical reactions. Essentially, we can see how atoms and molecules move around uh, in, in very, very short periods of time, right? Yeah, let me talk about that a bit uh, because you mentioned the wavelength axis as well, right? So why X-rays? Uh, what's so special about X-rays? Uh, femtochemistry actually uh, in, was honored with a Nobel Prize in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 1999 or something like this for Armin Seville. And yeah. uh, um, he actually uh, looked at chemical reactions on their natural time scale, uh, so bonds forming, bonds breaking, and that is um, a femtosecond time scale. So, so this sort of ultra-fast chemistry did exist. However, uh, what was not possible um, until uh, recently when these FELs came about is to uh, be able to look uh, with essentially atomic precision. So X-rays uh, are, uh, it depends a bit on their energy range, what we can do with them, but uh, at, at the slightly lower energy range up to a few kilo electron volts, which we call soft X-rays. Uh, in, in these uh, soft X-ray ranges, we can look at, uh, we do spectroscopy, and, and the spectroscopy is very specific to atoms. So, uh, for instance, a nitrogen atom in a molecule has a certain absorption edge, and that lies in the soft X-ray uh, range. And then we can look at this edge and we see uh, chemical shifts. So we see whenever the molecule is doing something different, that sort of electronic structure around the nitrogen atom is changing, and we see that in the signal. So, so we can essentially look at what happens in molecules, but with atomic resolution. So we can look at each of the atoms inside the molecule and see exactly what's happening. So we can, from that information, uh, construct um, yeah, what you would call a molecular movie. So we directly get um, uh, uh, information in, in, in four dimensions. So it's three dimensions in space and then the one dimension in, in time. And, and that's for that's the spectroscopy aspect of it. And there's another a very important aspect that is exploited uh, at uh, hard um, X-ray FELs, and that's related to um, uh, to to diffraction. So um, what what actually um, what you can do is is you can, for instance, diffract light from uh, from uh, from a lattice, and this has been exploited for many many years at synchrotrons. Um, and it gives you essentially um, information on the um, uh, on, on the dimensions of in, in that uh, crystal or in that material, and you will learn how uh, the crystal structure, first of all, 
what it is exactly that you are looking at. Uh, so we can use that diffraction data to infer what the structure looked like at, at a certain moment in time. So we can follow that in time. But we can look at deformations of materials. We can look at um, um, we can look at dynamic processes where you start, for instance, let's say some kind of wave that goes through the material. You, we can study superconductivity, uh, which actually uh, is in principle um, um, a phenomena that's uh, also related to uh, um, uh, often, you know, certain modes in the material that we can we can observe uh, in in the deformation of the of the crystal uh, of the lattice and and things like that. So so essentially. X-rays give us, um, uh, first of all, atomic resolution uh, spectral information, uh, but they also give us that sort of spatial information if they're in the, in the harder X-ray range. And, and we have LCLS has two experimental areas. The first one, which we call that comes after these uh, undulators that create the X-rays. The first one called the near experimental hall actually um, does most of the spectroscopy part because it's using soft X-rays. And then we have yes. a far that is using the hard X-rays. Yes, I want to understand that a little bit, Matthias. So uh, could you talk a bit about the engineering around this? So um, more generally, how do you produce this X-ray flashes? What, what is sort of the mechanics underneath that? Right, the, the mechanics, yeah, it's, it's actually quite impressive. Uh, um, I, I recommend everyone that's watching this, uh, if you uh, find the time, come and visit us and uh, go on a tour. Um, so um, there is initially, as I said, um, actually, I, I didn't say that yet, but the, the whole accelerator is about, uh, the, the tunnel is about three miles long. Uh, and at the moment, uh, each of our facilities uh, occupies about a mile of that uh, long tunnel. Um, but that just creates these very fast electrons. And then these fast electrons are sent into that sort of magnetic structure, the undulators that have opposing uh, alternating magnetic um, they sort of wiggling, they're wiggling the electrons and as they, they go through. The the wiggling motion, right? And, um, and, and these magnets are, ex uh, they're very strong. They essentially are held back by, um, uh, it's, it's engineering-wise, it's very impressive because uh, they would essentially, if you wouldn't hold them back by uh, strong enough forces, they would just smash into each other, right? Because these are, uh, they're uh, attracting magnets. Uh, and there's a strong field, and, and if you don't do anything to sort of uh, hold it back actively. And then we can control these massive, massive undulator structures uh, that have a lot of weight that they're moving. We can control them to a very, very fine precision. Uh, so what we control is the, is the gap between the magnets, which uh, in the end uh, uh, is, is controlling the field. And with the field, we can control the excursion of the electrons. And as the excursion is controlled, uh, we, we are controlling the X-ray uh, wavelength that is produced. So we have very fine control over um, over which wavelength we're producing. These are called variable gap undulators. So we, we are able to move them, and that enables us with the exact same electron beam that comes in to produce different types of X-rays that come out. So that's that's a, so that's what you call the undulators. So it's, a, it's a, essentially uh, making the free electrons move in some fashion, and that movement creates the X-rays. Right. And then you have to direct those X-rays to some systematic position, right, to to, to use it. So yeah, so what's yeah. on the back end of that? Yeah. Right. So we, we we dump the electrons. Uh, we. Uh, um, and and then the the X-rays so uh, light actually prefers to just. You know, uh, go in a in a straight line, uh, and X-rays in particular because they're um, as 
people know, they're penetrating through a lot of uh, materials easily. Uh, and it's very difficult even to uh, to bend them. So we have to go through um, quite some efforts uh, to, uh, to to bend them in their path and to uh, to focus them into an experimental chamber. But we, we do that. So imagine from where the undulators are, we essentially just go in a straight line <laughs> and then into what we call the experimental hutches. Um, and an experimental hutch is essentially an experimental infrastructure that serves a certain purpose. Uh, so we have an experimental hutch that deals with atomic and molecular and optical physics. Uh, uh, we have a hutch that deals with, uh, uh, for instance, um, uh, um, a chemical dynamics. So, and then we have uh, uh, in instruments and other hutches that look at uh, materials and, and things like that. And it is um, important to have this um, uh, sort of instruments that are very specific to a certain area because, uh, uh, because what we want is on that instrument to have enough uh, capability to ins inject the targets into the X-ray beam, to manipulate them, to maybe cool them down to very low temperatures, uh, as in quantum materials, uh, you might want to cool them down, um, to change their angles with respect to the X-rays and, and all these kinds of things, and then have various monitors to look at what comes out of the experiment. I haven't talked about that much yet, but. Um, the, the sort of simplest thing you can do is, is just look at whatever X-ray light is transmitted through your sample or reflected from the sample. That's a sort of X-ray in, X-ray out kind of experiment. But often we actually look at other particles, such as X-rays create um, electrons or X-rays create um, ions, charged ions, um, or, or something else. And, and, and essentially have detectors that detect these um, yeah, observables that are produced in an experiment. So that's where the, the cryogenic cooling is applied. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that you had to do, you had to cool these things down to two degree Kelvin or something like that. Yeah, that's the accelerator. So in fact, oh, okay. uh, the, the cooling down the accelerator helps us to just uh, operate at much, much higher uh, rates. So the, the, the main uh, advance between LCLS1 and LCLS2 uh, was to go from normal conducting to superconducting accelerators. Uh, and, uh, and, and essentially that enabled us to run them at, at, at much higher current, so much higher repetition rate uh, without uh, the structures melting, right? So because that would happen otherwise, you just produce too much heat. Um, but in superconducting materials, there's no resistance. So um, we can crank up the power while uh, essentially not producing any, any heat and, uh, or not much heat. And I think this is the trick. So, so the, at the moment, the accelerator SLS2 is using superconducting technology at 2 Kelvin, which is actually colder than outer space. So it's really very cool. <laughs> Yeah. Um, very, very cool. Uh, and um, uh, but then the rest uh, of what comes after the undulators, the experimental halls where we do the experiments with these X-rays, they typically don't uh, use cryocooling. There is there is a different there, there is one exception, and that is in materials research. When you look at, uh, for instance, superconductivity in materials and you study it. Uh, so on the one hand, we use it for the accelerator. Um, if, for, for making the X-rays, but then in studying materials, sometimes we actually cool them down on purpose also to uh, very low temperatures, not necessarily 2 Kelvin, but let's say 10 to 15 Kelvin or so, uh, to, to look at 
uh, how superconductivity forms, uh, how it interacts with other types of excitations in the material, and two, essentially, let, let me bring it to one point, to develop the next generation superconductors. Mm. Right? And, and that's important because imagine, imagine we would live in a world where uh, you know, uh, uh, electricity is transported from, uh, you know, where it's produced to uh, the, us, to, to the users, in, uh, by superconducting uh, wires, then in principle there's zero loss along the way. So we would have a much more efficient way of distributing power. We would need to live with much less power produced because the losses are not there. Um, and, and, and it goes on and on. I mean, we could make cars more efficient. We could make everything more efficient, essentially, if we would have, and that's the point, if we would have superconductors that work at higher temperature. At the moment, we have to cool most of them down to very, very low temperatures, but it would, it's, it's still a dream of the science community to develop other materials, and we're contributing to that effort. It's not all we do. We do a lot more, but that's part of the research that's being done. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of looked into this, Mathieu. So there was some news from South Korea that um, they found a room temperature superconductivity uh, superconductor. Um, where do we stand on that? Has that been replicated? Uh, well, I'm not an expert on this. I think the, the, the rumors that I have heard is that um, there are some doubts on, on this result, uh, on this result. And I think any... Um, any news like this were, uh, uh, you know, um, for instance, room temperature superconductors are postulated. Uh, they need to be verified by the scientific community. So I'm, as a professor and researcher, I really truly believe in, the, in, in research being uh, sort of a, a mission of humanity where, uh, yes, it's important to make discoveries, but it's just as important uh, to reproduce them and to be able to reproduce them. So if if you if you hear news like this from any lab uh, and it can't be reproduced, that that is a problem. Uh, and I've not heard about anyone else reproducing this result yet. So yeah. Uh, so I, I I would think that the answer to this question is no, but I'm going to ask this anyway, <laughs> Matthias. So um, you know we have this wave function collapse problem uh -huh. um, in in, uh, in quantum mechanics. Um, mm. Maybe LCLS2 doesn't get there. Maybe there's an LCLS3 get there. Can we actually practically look at if this is actually true? <laughs> that when you observe the wave function collapses explanation? So, yeah, I've taught quantum mechanics, so I, I know a little bit about that, but I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question correctly, but let me answer what I understood. Uh, so we do, look, we do look at quantum effects. In fact, um, the X-ray light that we use essentially often interacts with materials in a in a quantum way. So it's it's uh, an X-ray. We, we call these light particles photons, and uh, and they have a certain energy that depends on the wavelength, right? So, um, and um, uh, then uh, essentially we we have such a photon interact with the material that creates an electron of a of a defined energy and an excitation in the material of a defined energy and so on. So these are all quantum quantized effects. Uh, so we do look at quantum effects all the time, um, and and what enables us to do so is essentially using uh, the the quantum nature of light. So uh, so 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 in in that aspect, we are able to look at um, also um, quantum effects, for instance, in molecules where initially we have an ex so what you can have in, in quantum mechanics is essentially 
uh, you can have, uh, similar to Schrodinger's cat, you can have uh, a molecule that exists in sort of two states at the same time, and it doesn't quite decide which state it actually, you know, and it ends up in until you do the measurement. And then the measurement actually collapses the wave function, and it will tell you whether you are in, in state A or B, right? Mm. Uh, and there's a certain probability that is given then by the laws of quantum mechanics, if how much, uh, how often you end up in state A or state B. But uh, before we do the measurement, uh, the system exists in this, uh, it's called coherent superposition of, of two states. We have that very often. Actually, it's a beauty of quantum mechanics and it's also what is underlying quantum computing, that you can have essentially a superposition of states. And so that um, uh, the, the sort of collapse of the wave function is what we uh, induce in measurements uh, intentionally uh, to, to get a certain result. But since quantum mechanics is, uh, you know, deals with probabilities, just observing that once means nothing. <laughs> so you need to observe it many, many times and then measure essentially the likelihood you end up in, 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 in a certain sort of final state. And that will tell you something about the quantum system in the end. Right. So there, there, we have a lot of life sciences uh, folks listening to this, uh, Matthias, and you know, so this is going to really push into um, life sciences research a little bit, right? So chirality um, is it, a big issue there. Some some chemicals are toxic, some chemicals are beneficial. So so how, how would uh, LCLS to um, impact that arena? Right. Um, in, I think in many ways. So um, the uh, first one is that essentially we're now able to look at um, the, the, the functions of enzymes. Um, and, and I should always say that we really means not us here at the facility, <laughs> but the scientific user community that comes to us and is using the facility. That's a very important point, right? So it's not just a few people that sit here at Slack that come up with all the ideas, hopefully some of the ideas, but but it's really it's, it's the scientific community at, at large, so the global community that comes up with the best ideas. Uh, and among these ideas are, are groups that uh, study the functionality of enzymes and, and as an example, uh, that is well somewhat related to uh, um, uh, biomolecules, not necessarily to, to, to health yet is we can use these enzymes to um, for producing clean energy, for uh, decarbonizing the um, atmosphere and things like that. So uh, using biological specimen for new sort of functionality that uh, helps humanity to uh, deal with important questions of sustainability is, is something that we're uh, heavily you know, invested in and uh, we see more and more at the facility. And another one, I think that relates a bit more to what you were asking, is uh, how how can we how can we essentially design systems to have new functionalities? Uh, so to, for instance, um, uh, open new uh, ways to um, uh, treat diseases or uh, or to protect us from uh, harmful radiation or things like that. And and this is uh, this is research that we have been doing. Uh, to, I think, some parts with LCLS-1, but the main issue was that we we essentially were limited in, um, in in two things. We were limited at the at sort of how well we could resolve these uh, dynamics, uh, because we're talking about large molecules typically in, in biology. So that means you have, you have a very sort of complex structure to solve, so you need a lot of data to do so. 
um, and, um, um, and 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 then yeah, being able to to look at the dynamics so the time axis will will be impactful. Another thing is often uh, when structures are investigated of um, of um, viruses or of of some specimen we're interested in. Uh, such as, uh, you know, there were also studies on the coronavirus uh, at LCLS. Um, then, um, uh, let's say in, in conventional studies, what actually happens is, you know, they need to be crystallized in large crystals. Um, and then you can go to a synchrotron and you can rotate the crystal in the beam and you can take that sort of data that tells you something about the structure. And often we actually don't know the structure. So knowing the structure helps a lot uh, in order to understand what their functionality is. Now with LCLS, um, the advantage is we have so much light within that one burst that we can essentially, we don't uh, need to rotate the crystals anymore uh, and just uh, take uh, data on a, on a single, very, very small crystal or not even the crystal, just on the, on the molecule itself uh, and record that within one single image, one, one shot essentially of, of this high repetition grade source. Um, and, and then uh, do that at, uh, um, you know, at room temperature in, in conditions where actually that, uh, um, that system functions in real life. So when you cool it down, you form a crystal and you have it at sort of these uh, conditions where it's not natural in its environment. So most of the molecules in our body are in a water type environment, right? Uh, and we want to reproduce that. We want to create conditions that are very similar to what we see in nature. And I think that's what we're able to do at LCLS. We can, we can look at uh, systems in their sort of natural state and environment, uh, and then, and then uh, um, resolve their structure and their structure, of course, with time, but it's also, it's, it's important to be able to resolve their structure under these conditions. Yeah, so, so if you want to summarize uh, sort of the practical side of this, uh, Matthias, so let me see if I understand this. So, we can um, very, very, um, uh, very have a very detailed definition of materials, um, how they look, how they act, how they react, all that stuff. That information then allows us to potentially design custom materials, right? So that goes into uh, superconductivity, that goes into life sciences and other areas. So foundationally, well, uh, would I be correct if I saying um, the the primary use of the technology is understand materials in a very detailed fashion, and then design materials for noble uses in a variety of areas. Would that be a correct summary? I think that that is that that is a that is a very good summary. Um, I, there is a whole area that I did not yet mention. Of course, there is the discovery aspect also, right? So we might be. I'm very optimistic that we might be able to see uh, materials in states that haven't even been discovered just yet. Yeah. Um, but but there's another aspect that we haven't talked about yet, and that is we can look at materials under very extreme conditions. So we can create conditions that we see in the uh, inner uh, sort of parts of, you know, uh, of, of planets or the sun, we can go all the way up to uh, conditions that we see there. Um, and these are um, uh, conditions we can actually create artificially using a very high intensity laser, not the x-rays, but uh, an optical laser. 
Um, and then, however, that sort of um, um, material in this state at very high temperatures, very high pressures, for instance, exists only for a very brief amount of time. So we can make it, but only for, let's say, uh, a few hundreds of femtoseconds or whatever that is. Uh, and, and so we need then again these ultra-fast X-ray light flashes to look inside those materials at those conditions to understand what's going on. And I can give you a very nice example that I like from research that was done here, where uh, a group looked at essentially uh, water under, under very high pressure and uh, um, high temperature conditions. And what they saw is that under these conditions, water becomes metallic. So it starts to conduct currents, uh, and essentially uh, it, it forms a new form of ice that uh, wasn't discovered uh, so far. Uh, so I learned being here that there are 19 forms of ice that actually have been discovered so far. Yeah. I would have thought there's just one, but no, there's there's many more. Um, and, and this, in the end, is responsible, for instance, for the magnetic fields that form around uh, the planet Neptune. And uh, mm. that has a lot of sort of uh, water in its uh, uh, in its atmosphere, and essentially that uh, if that becomes metallic, it fulfills a, sim a similar functionality as the iron core uh, mm. in our uh, planet Earth. Um, so, so this was um, measured before by um, um, uh, by uh, probes that were sent to to that planet, but it wasn't fully understood how that actually can work. Uh, and we can create conditions here in the lab. Uh, that reproduce essentially the conditions, uh, these very extreme conditions, and then uh, learn something about them. Yeah, that's so interesting. So all these exoplanets uh, we are uh, discovering, and we have some measurements of the conditions that exist there. And potentially, if those conditions can be replicated, maybe this type of experiments could give us some insights into the chemistry that might be there, potentially. We're, for instance, learning about chemistry in outer space. Uh, we're doing experiments, or the experiments being done at LCLS as we speak, on um, what happens on uh, icy dust particles uh, in outer space and how potentially molecules actually also form under these conditions. So, so yes, that's something that's being done. Um, for, for the planets, I think the conditions I talked about are, of course, you know, giant gas planets and things that... Yeah, yeah. Early support life, uh, but I think we, we learn a lot about um, the universe from uh, uh, from from light that we see from from these planets that we see from from the stars. And in the case of planets, again, I'm not the expert, but uh, there's there's certain sort of markers in the atmosphere of these planets that we can look for. Um, and, and we do something very similar in a way uh, at LCLS with X-ray spectroscopy. It's a very different spectral range typically than, uh, than that. But we look at sort of fine details in how, um, how the environment is, is changing, which, which sort of molecules are forming. And in principle, if yes, if there would be an X-ray source on these, <laughs> on these <laughs> planets, we would be in, the, sort of in a good position to tell what's going on. Uh, it's, it's typically these frequencies are in the infrared or even uh, sort of microwave uh, uh, frequencies that were, where um, interesting transitions and molecules happen uh, in the atmosphere of exoplanets that are, let's say, would support life and that we would be, uh, that would potentially be interesting uh, to us. But, but uh, you know, as a physicist, I, I think I always uh, uh, tend to strive for 
an as complete uh, knowledge of the universe we live in. And that means um, if we can describe you know, all kinds of scenarios where uh, you have these very extreme conditions we don't see on Earth, but we see in other, other planets, even in our own solar system, I think that is absolutely great. And that might enable us to use some of those conditions to artificially create, for instance, uh, um, um, uh, fusion, right? This was big news also this uh, year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that uh, um, uh, breaking essentially the, uh, the, the, the limit where um, laser-induced fusion can generate more uh, uh, um, uh, power than was used to, uh, was put in. Um, and, and this is a, it's, it's, it's definitely a breakthrough that um, gives me hope that uh, one day we might be able to recreate what the sun is doing every, you know, every day. Uh, to give us energy uh, in on Earth to uh, produce um, energy in a very sort of efficient, but also a much more environmentally friendly way. Yeah, if we, if we get fusion, we can suck all the carbon uh, out of the atmosphere too. <laughs> so it solves a <laughs> lot of lot of problems. So in conclusion, right, right. it is. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, we, we do have a, um, a program now at uh, LCLS. It's a it's very new where. Well, we, we, we pay a bit more attention also to research that is important for the fusion community. Uh, and uh, we, we can't just create uh, exactly the conditions here because we don't uh, uh, have these powerful lasers, but we can create conditions that are important uh, for uh, the um, furthering of these facilities. So, so it is research that in the end uh, will contribute to making these facilities better uh, and getting us one day to to actually have a reactor uh, that can be implemented. As you probably know, there are many companies out there now yeah. that are um, uh, uh, yeah, trying to achieve this goal. Right. So in conclusion, Matthias, I mean, this is fantastic, um, fantastic instrument. I would imagine there is a line of people <laughs> in Palo Alto trying to use it. Um, yes. So. Um, so, so do you see um, sort of an LCLS three in the making? Um, not immediately, of course, but uh, do you see we can go further? Yeah, I like the question. So, what uh, we have actually planned next, uh, and it's already uh, it's a train that's moving uh, at high speed, is to upgrade LCLS two to LCLS two HE, HE for high energy. Um, LCLS2 at the moment, um, and you know, we'll start using the first photons uh, uh, very soon. Is um, is producing soft X-rays, uh, so the slightly lower energy X-rays, and we can use them for a lot of exciting experiments. Uh, but we also plan an upgrade that allows us to produce these hard X-rays that I explained we use for, for instance, imaging applications. Um, uh, we, we, that will happen in uh, uh, on, on a time frame of a few years, so we will have that upgrade. And then we have yet another upgrade where we will uh, inaugurate um, uh, or bring a petawatt uh, laser system to LCLS to create even more extreme conditions to study these very extreme sort of uh, um, 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 yeah, conditions and materials. And there are many ideas how to exploit essentially the capabilities of the accelerator in a better way. So at the moment, um, we, uh, with the superconducting accelerator, we uh, were, were sort of, we're so far above, uh, you know, what, what we can even uh, fully exploit experimentally. Uh, yeah. In principle, we would dream about a synchrotron-like farm of experiments that is uh, fed by this um, 
by this accelerator and the x-rays that come out of it. Um, and, and that's sort of going from just two undulators that we have now, uh, so we can run two experiments essentially in parallel. Um, we, would, we would like to go out to maybe 10, something like that, and we could operate them all at the same time. Imagine the scientific output would uh, be yeah, tremendously yeah. higher. Uh, would enable the community to uh, to come here more often, and the sort of uh, um, it, it would become much much easier to get access. Um, and that's sort of what we have uh, in mind for um, just exploiting LCLS two in a full way. And there are plans for or dreams about how what the next facility LCLS three or LCLS something you know some <laughs> number uh, would look like. Um, and and it's I, I think this is really it's uh, what what I like about X-ray science with free electron lasers is we have a, a few uh, partner facilities around the globe. Uh, they're all very excited about this because it's a very young field. I mean, it, uh, the first uh, hot X-ray FEL was LCLS uh, and uh, just started operation in 2009, so it's relatively young, right? Uh, and and there's it's just uh, the development is. Is is mind blowing. I mean, uh, that uh, within just uh, that very short time frame of uh, something like uh, you know now it's uh, uh, um, uh, since its inauguration it's 14 years. So in these 14 years we see yet another orders of magnitude increase in performance. It's it's unbelievable, and and I think it will keep going at some rate that we still see sort of uh, very novel concepts come to uh, um, fruition and where. Where we can we, we we have light sources that we didn't think were possible before, and and every of these steps, I mean, I'm excited about just the physics of these light sources, but but there's also always science that is all of a sudden being enabled of by having yeah. this uh, one of these uh, new uh, uh, tools with uh, with imagine if you have a microscope and you're looking at uh, at, at a small structure. Um, you need light to resolve all of the details. So if you have just so much more light, it becomes much easier to look at finer and finer details. And, and as we go down and exploring finer details of the microcosm, we would like to have even brighter light sources. But I think for the time being, we have we have a lot to do uh, at uh, LCLS with LCLS2 starting operation with LCLS2HE in the plans. Uh, but our our imagination of course, doesn't stop. So um, I can tell the, you. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. So, so last question. So is the is the physics limit the temperature? How, uh, how cold you can get? It, well, in, in some sense, because it's the, the the sort of temperature of the electron beam that matters. Uh, I learned this from a colleague actually today. Um, that uh, you know the electrons we want to accelerate them first of all to very high energies in in one dimension, but we want the um, we call them electron bunches, so a couple of electrons that all sit together and that we accelerate in these structures. We want them to have as 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 little temperature in other dimensions because it, it this this is detrimental to the free electron laser, so the lasing process and. And so, uh, in some sense, uh, the the electron beam being cold <laughs> uh, is is important. We're working on improving on that. Um, but I think I think I have to say, accelerator technology came a long, long way, uh, and it's it's amazing where we are nowadays. Um, we actually have to catch up in many other fields. Um, we haven't talked about that yet. But uh, for instance, we don't have um, uh, X-ray imaging detectors that work at these very high 
data at these very high rates. So we can, at the moment, these detectors, there are some developments here at uh, Slack, uh, and we've seen the first chips produce uh, uh, more than, you know, five or uh, kilohertz, um, which is which is encouraging. But in, now compare five kilohertz, 5,000 uh, uh, um, uh, images that they can take per second to the one million we could potentially produce. Yeah. So there's a big gap in what we can produce in terms of uh, the light source and uh, what we would need on the experimental side. So we're, we have a very active and vibrant uh, research program on how do we deal uh, with uh, these detectors, how, how do we develop them, how do we uh, deal with a, with a large amount of data, for instance. This, and you cannot imagine how much data we're producing. I mean, it's, uh, it's terabytes within just minutes, right? And if you run for a few hours, I mean, you have so much data. Essentially, we have to come up with new ways how to, uh, I mean, compress that data, uh, dig out the most important information really in real time, essentially, and just store what is important. Uh, and that uh, that's not an easy task because obviously you're creating more and more data as you're processing it. Uh, so this has to be, a, um, you know, has to be a supercomputer that essentially deals with this problem. And then we need storage. We need we need storage solutions for so much data, and and uh, well, luckily we're in a living we're living in a world where uh, computer technologies and, um, and and data analysis and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of that is really um, uh, growing very strongly as well. And we're making good use of of the developments in this community to uh, to help us essentially deal with this uh, big data problem. Excellent, Matthias. Uh, this is great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Gil. Thank you.